Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the thriller, a kind of genre that is frankly dying out. The thrill is gone. But happy Halloween nonetheless. Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher. What is Stitcher? Well, with Stitcher's free mobile app, you can listen to your favorite radio programs and podcasts anytime and anywhere you want. Stitcher's wide breadth of programming lets you choose from the latest news, sports, talk, business, and entertainment from the industry's premier content providers. It's the easiest way to stay connected to your world while you're on the go. I am a pack rat. That might be the most frightening concept I introduce in this particular inappropriate conversation because although I want to deal with what I would call Halloween movies, and in fact, a Halloween six-pack, if you will, these really aren't going to have anything to do with slasher films or horror films. I want to focus in particular on the genre that we used to see on the TV guide listings called thriller. And this kind of goes back to the before the point when the slasher movie became mainstream. You started to see thriller used less and less around the time that you got the sequels for Friday the 13th and Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street because those films kind of didn't fit into the what traditionally was the horror genre either. The Exorcist would show on TV with a parental warning notice as a you know movie horror. But a movie thriller would be one that was a little bit more subtle, perhaps like Rosemary's Baby, where there really isn't that much gore and overt violence involved. It's more just spooky and creepy. Well, among the things that might be just a little bit spooky are the fact that I'm a pack rat. I do not tend to throw stuff away, which is why a lot of inappropriate conversations refer back to the past. And I wanted to do that again today. There are a couple of people out there, in fact, who may be listeners who have read for themselves what I'm about to read to you. Because from time to time, it makes sense to share a piece of film criticism with somebody else. Now, I've been writing film criticism since long before I ever had a job as the entertainment editor of a college newspaper or any sort of freelance sense after that. I've been writing movie reviews for as long as I can remember. It's one of the things I'm passionate about. And if I just jump over to the folder that I maintain on Better Picks, it ties into that idea that I mentioned in the 50th Inappropriate Conversation, this notion of better pictures being either better than the best picture in any given year or the one notch below it. If there is a best, then this is better. So just almost as good as the best. And in there, I've got several documents that I've saved over the years reviewing films, just going from the titles of the files alone and from memory, their reviews of The Blair Witch Project, No Country for Old Men, The Sixth Sense, two reviews, as a matter of fact, The Passion of the Christ, Leaving Las Vegas, and Showgirls. And as, as I recall, that combination was actually a review of Leaving Las Vegas, Showgirls, Pretty Woman, and Solo, The 120 Days of Sodom, all rolled up into one omnibus sort of review. Eyes Wide Shut is also in this menu, as is the most embarrassing one that I can recall, uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Of all of the reviews that I'm looking at, there may be points in time where my position has strengthened over time or weakened, where I've sharpened my point of view and it could have changed a little bit of the aspect of it. But Star Wars The Phantom Menace 
that's a review that I don't think I've shared with anybody. In fact, if you know me personally and I shared this review with you, then that it connotes a tremendous amount of camaraderie between us because I liked the movie a lot more on first viewing. I took some comfort, as a matter of fact, from a remastered show where Jason and Rich were talking about just that exact thing, um, being so desperate to like a new Star Wars movie, being so grateful for the presence and existence of a new Star Wars movie that a lot of us on first viewing cut that film a lot of slack. And in fact, Damon from the Geek Fights podcast recently talked about seeing the 3D reissue of The Phantom Menace and actually you know, deciding that the time had come to stop apologizing for enjoying it. It may not be the best Star Wars movie. It may not be that good of a Star Wars movie. But at the end of the day, it's a Star Wars movie. Uh, my review probably read something like that. But that's not the direction I want to go in today. Today, I want to share an entire series of films that if you haven't seen, you should. And if you have seen, I don't think it's going to tire you that much to get a reminder about them. Halloween films need to rise from the dead. As a genre, comedy has not adequately replaced Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. In spite of annual efforts to revive film noir, modern film producers use way too much color and money to recapture the essence of that unique style. But no genre has lost so much to its past as the thriller. Thrillers. We don't even use the term anymore, except to talk about a Michael Jackson album. Hollywood still makes horror films, and science fiction, and B-movie producers are notorious for their slasher films. From time to time, audiences still get a monster movie. Cloverfield being an excellent example of a recent monster movie. Still, most modern creature features have budgets that loom much larger than the behemoths depicted in those full-scale spectaculars. No, the thrill is gone. Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee made their share of laughably bad films. They also produced a brand of movie that we rarely find, even on The Late Show, these days. Made-for-TV Productions once included an unknown director named Steven Spielberg, telling the story of an ordinary man dueling with a menacing trucker. Now, made-for-TV is a buzzword warning us that the latest sensationalist headline, date rape, husbands leading double lives, women who love too much, have been turned into a primetime special complete with Jackie Collins' production values. On Fridays at midnight in the 1970s, even with only three or four channels to choose from, you could often, if not always, find a thriller. The quality ranged from Roger Corman's series of Edgar Allan Poe B-movies to Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. You know, I never made it all the way to the end of Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. You show a plotting sort of overdramatic Grand Guignol-style film at, starting in at midnight and have it run with commercial breaks over two hours, maybe three hours even. Yeah, I'm not going to make it to the end of that. Creepy, yes, but one of these days I'll actually have to sit down and give it a proper viewing. Corman's B-movies, to me, much more impressive. Corman would actually go, from time to time, on the set of a film that had just finished with a big budget. Uh, I believe The Lion in Winter had completed its primary shooting, and they were about to take down the sets of that Oscar-winning film when Corman said, hey, my group will take care of the demolition for you if you don't mind me using the sets you've built for, you know, a couple of weeks. And over the course of 14 to 18 shooting days, he would shoot a movie set in a similar time frame. But instead of an elaborate, well-cared-for castle, he would shoot something in a castle that was falling down and, and shoot scenes that would you know appear in movies like Ligia or The Fall of the House of Usher. 
But unlike the late, late movies that I remember was on it when I was a kid, it now seems that the only reruns that are available are carbon copy sequels under the headings Friday the 13th or worse. In an homage to what we've lost, I'd like to offer a six-pack of Halloween movies. Without exception, these films are rated PG or are of current PG-13 caliber. Some were made for TV. Some were produced before the MPAA rating system. They are clean, so to speak, when compared to the work of modern horror directors like Dario Argento. Most are low-budget and hard to find. I have managed to acquire the majority of them, but I'm still looking to scare up a copy of one, and that's where I'll start. A Cold Night's Death. Summit Laboratory, come in, come in. Base to Summit, are you ready? Yes, yes, God, Summit please, Laboratory. I'm here, I'm here. Oh, I'm Base here, please, in. listen, oh, please. Summit, me. You don't hear me, listen, you don't me. hear me. Summit, Get me out, you don't know, oh, God, you can't hear Summit, me. You don't hear me. Come in. The radio's dead, don't you see? The radio's dead. Don't you see what happened? I told you, I told you, and nobody listened. Nobody listened! January 17, Base Research Station, Ryan Horner, Project Director. Today is our fifth day without radio contact with Dr. Vogel. Previous attempts to reach Summit Laboratory have failed because of continuing snowstorms. I fear for Vogel's well-being. Before we lost transmission, his radio contacts were becoming increasingly sporadic and irrational, to the point that he reported having conversations with such figures as Napoleon and Alexander the Great. I'm deeply concerned that he may not be feeding the monkeys and chimps, nor recording the results of our altitude experiments on them. If this is the case, the four years of research for the space program will have been wasted. Our promised delivery date is less than three months away, and we must salvage the project. Doctors Robert Jones and Frank Inari arrived from the university this morning to relieve Vogel and continue the experiments. I am much relieved that this particular team was made available to finish the project, as it was their research in stress situations man might encounter in space exploration that is the basis of our program. The storm has calmed enough for Val Adams to fly them in along with a new chimp for experiment control. I must confess my deep concern as to what they will find. A couple of years after Spielberg's duel began to distinguish ABC's Tuesday night movie of the week as must-see TV, the same time slot featured A Cold Night's Death, sometimes known today as Chill Factor, but less often I would think since a more modern film has been made with that title. With even fewer characters than Duel, and much lower than the low-budget norm, A Cold Night's Death featured Eli Wallach and Robert Culp in sparring roles as research scientists sent to... What at the time I thought was an Arctic laboratory when I first saw it, but instead it's more of a remote mountaintop, high-altitude laboratory. Either way, they're fighting the elements of snow and wind and isolation. In particular, these two have been sent to replace a team of scientists who have mysteriously disappeared. 
In addition to restoring order at the outpost, they also seek clues to the mystery. Bolstered by strong acting and a snowy claustrophobic setting, A Cold Night's Death is a triumph as an icy character study with a chilling ending. I did a review once of A Cold Night's Death and put it on Simply Read at www.simplysyndicated.com. A Cold Night's Death is actually available on YouTube, cut up into 10-minute slices. Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for Those About to Rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplysyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but, you know, we try our best. I'd like to pick up on my list with Carnival of Souls. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making, Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl-driven man by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture-making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Many critics identify Night of the Living Dead as the transitional film that supplanted psychological terror with gore. George Romero openly acknowledges an inspirational debt to a Kansas independent filmmaker named Herc Harvey. In 1962, Harvey introduced the zombie-like character to Romero, in Carnival of Souls. Harvey's film skips the gore, instead using surrealism to create a horror film where the zombie may be real or a ghost. Harvey's ghoul doesn't need to cannibalize or carve up his victim. His pursuit of the tragic heroine provides all the necessary scares. Carnival of Souls was the last great black-and-white thriller before Night of the Living Dead, and Night of the Living Dead, of course, upped the ante and changed the rules forever. Invasion of the Body Snatchers Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, 
If you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. It's whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. This isn't just an ordinary body, is it? I never saw one like it. It looks... unused. The sensational star discovery of The View from Poppy's Head. And now an undreamed-of horror makes her life and love a vortex of fear. Jack! <laughs> Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! In 1956, Don Siegel directed a thriller that most of us have surely seen. The released version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is radically different from the film Siegel delivered to the studio. Ironically, the director's cut, never released, of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a great Hollywood rarity. It's shorter than the theatrical version and doesn't contain any additional footage. Call it addition by subtraction. But the original beginning and ending of Siegel's film were so unsettling to test audiences that additional footage was added to make the plot all right. To see the director's cut of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, fast forward past the train station introduction, mute the narration. Begin the movie with the doctor arriving at his office, and end the movie when the doctor is chased onto the highway and helplessly waves his arms for someone, anyone, to pull over and listen to him. Mid-1950s America had evolved into both the Cold War and the Red Scare. Sputnik would soon be orbiting overhead. Reefer Madness had long ago implied that certain menacing plants could take over the minds of America's youth. The abrupt ending that Siegel had planned must have seemed positively conspiratorial to many viewers. Unfortunately, all we have to work with today is the watered-down version. Careful use of the remote control is the only way to recreate the movie that Invasion of the Body Snatchers was meant to be. The Scarlet Claw, or perhaps Sherlock Holmes and the Scarlet Claw. Gentlemen, my wife has just been found dead, her throat torn out. 
So you proceeded to fall in the bog, eh? Fall? I was put into the blasted thing, pushed by the most ghastly apparition. Judge Brisson, if you'll answer a few questions, I may be able to save your life. I have the fullest confidence in my own defenses. And I will not trade them for any theories of Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Under the circumstances, I'm helpless to prevent your death. Throw your revolver on the floor in front of you and raise your hand, Sherlock Holmes. Look out, Watson! As an extinct genre, thrillers are so far gone that we may no longer recognize the adventures of Sherlock Holmes as thrillers. The Scarlet Claw fits the bill, though. While The Hound of the Baskervilles has even stronger supernatural leaning, The Scarlet Claw deserves special distinction from the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce series because it was an original. Without the help of an Arthur Conan Doyle plotline, The Scarlet Claw nevertheless brings all the atmosphere and mystery to the story of grisly murders committed on Canadian marches by a legendary creature with deadly claws. Not only does The Scarlet Claw offer plenty of suspicious characters, the killer proves to be a master of disguise. Even after Holmes identifies the criminal, the suspense only escalates as the detectives try to determine whom he's impersonating. Alfred Hitchcock could not have improved the scene in the judge's house. I'll say no more. The Other Not The Others, with Nicole Kidman. The Other, from the 1970s. Life was good to the Perrys of Pequot Landing. For 300 years they lived in this place. The generations were rich with love. And the most beloved of all were the twins, Niles and Holland. That summer they shared a secret life in the apple cellar, in the nursery. We 
think I saw him down by the park. Thomas Tryon, author of the best-selling novel, and Robert Mulligan, director of The Summer of 42, present a chilling new concept of terror and madness. My God, my George, God. what is it? George, what is it? What happened? George, what is it? What happened? Oh, my God. There have been all the others. Now there is the other. Alan, where is the baby? When a story features a dysfunctional family with an evil twin concealing a dark macabre secret, it would be natural to assume that the plot comes from a soap opera. The Other, on the other hand, is a 1972 psychological thriller based on Thomas Tryon's novel. As both a writer and actor, Tryon knew how to fill his story with ideal visual elements for filming. Amazingly, at least by modern standards, the movie is both frightening and PG-rated. As a movie like The Sixth Sense capably illustrated, movies about children grappling with evil always seem more frightening. The Exorcist is a more graphic example. Although many elements of the other may seem contrived 40 years later, much of the technique in Robert Mulligan's film were still fresh at the time. Like too many thrillers, though, it loses much of its impact on repeat viewings. The other is a better movie when you don't know what to expect. Of course, it is broadcast so rarely, most audiences will be seeing the movie anew. And I'll do my best to stop here and avoid any spoilers. Come to the asylum. Come to the asylum. To get killed. Come to the asylum. Yes, I think the time has come to take Byron's toys away from you. To get killed. Come to the asylum. To get killed. Asylum. Now you hurry and get dressed, and I'll go down the hall and, uh... Asylum, starring Peter Cushing, Britt Eklund, Herbert Lom, Patrick McGee, Barry Morse, Barbara Parker, Robert Powell, Charlotte Rampling, Sylvia Sims, Richard Todd, James Villiers. Asylum. Asylum, the most exciting film you'll ever see. My next entry is the horror anthology film as a genre, and I'm going to cite Asylum, The House That Dripped Blood, and Trilogy of Terror. Any one of these films would make an excellent coda to a Halloween film festival. They are anthology films, telling three or more different stories featuring different characters. That makes it possible for me to play Baron von Frankenstein and put together the parts to give life to an altogether new monster. Movie, that is. Dead of Night, the British horror anthology from 1945, would stand alone quite nicely as this final entry. I'm going to cheat, though, and pull parts from these three 1970s color films. The opening segment of Asylum shows a new psychiatrist meeting the terminal cases in the ward of a remote mental hospital. His first case poses the question, 
Why would a woman try to chop herself repeatedly with an axe? In a story that owes a great debt to Pose the Black Cat or the Telltale Heart, the killer's conscience literally comes crawling out to haunt her. This house is full of sounds. The loudest is your heart pounding in the night. The softest is the sound of terror. In this house, terror waits for you in every room. Where are they? Vixens and victims. You'll find them all in the house that dripped blood. blood, 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 blood. The house that dripped blood opens with one of the most frightening 25-minute films ever made. A writer with a Stephen King mentality rents a remote house, purported to be haunted, in order to arrest his writer's block. As he creates a gruesome story about a strangler running amok, the writer begins to see one of his characters come to life. This is a movie where I, as a child made one of the biggest mistakes you could possibly make in a thriller. I stopped watching partway through because I was scared. Now, in my defense, I may have only been 10 years old at the time. I don't know. But not knowing how this story resolved itself meant that my imagination was resolving the story in a myriad of terrifying ways. One of the most important things to do with thrillers, or for that matter, with horror films, is to see them through. It may be a mistake to go, but it's certainly a mistake to leave early. Trilogy of Terror, with its devil doll character, is probably the most famous of all of these Halloween recommendations. It was the triumphant moment in Karen Black's Tour de Force 1975 television anthology film. Trilogy of Terror provides the perfect ending to my spliced anthology. Asylum starts up with a woman who believes in African spiritualism, and Trilogy of Terror ends with one such spirit running amok. Like a cold night's death, where two actors sustain the plot, the Devil Doll story from Trilogy of Terror features Black almost exclusively. The antique warrior doll she buys on the street comes to life and only has one instinct, to hunt and kill. Her life and death struggle, although comic and ridiculous, has earned cult status as one of the most horrifying short films ever made. Trilogy of Terror carried a parental advisory warning during its first broadcast. That is typical of many made-for-TV movies nowadays. In the mid-1970s, though, parental discretion advised almost always meant that the TV station was broadcasting a theatrical film. As the only slasher film in this Halloween six-pack, it is fitting that the most graphic movie in this collection was never screened for the MPAA to rate. For all the stabbing and screaming, perhaps my favorite moment in the film, or at least the one I find truly the most frightening from a thriller's perspective, is as simple as a phone call. This is Amelia, Mom. 
I'm sorry I acted the way I did. I think we should spend the evening together just the way we planned. It's kind of late, though. Why don't you come by my place and we'll go from here? <sighs> no, I'm all right. Good. I'll be waiting for you. A couple of years ago at Halloween time, I spoke of my love for the writings of Edgar Allan Poe. I think you can see that there's connections here between what's a thriller and what's a slasher film or a horror film. And Edgar Allan Poe may be as good a way as any to measure that difference. We might describe Edgar Allan Poe's work as being atmospheric and moody, and among the many things that I'm going to cite about the different drummer this week is the ability to create just that kind of mood. As I'm fond of doing, I'm going to go straight to the website for our different drummer and read the bio that you'll find there. Jacob Rellinger, a writer, musician, visual artist, graphic designer, and podcaster, Jacob Rellinger has been called a Renaissance man by several people. He's been given several less generous monikers by considerably more people. His entrance into the universe of audio shows was on the radio program Pins of Light, broadcast in British Columbia, where he was a regular co-host. Later, his preview reviews podcasts were created for and broadcast as a part of the show Enthusiasm Radio on the same station. He was lucky enough to find Mandy, who he tricked into being his secret weapon co-host for a series of podcasts which eventually became Nerd Hurdles. Jacob Rellinger is the Jacob side of Jacob and Mandy from the Nerd Hurdles podcast, but he's actually much, much more. I'm going to try, if I do my job well, to make reference today, not just to Nerd Hurdles as a podcast, but also to Ampersand Publishing, to the music, Babel, Moonwood, and others, and to the artwork that you'll find from him if you search for him on Flickr. Although I'd have to say, if nailed down, the number one reason that I have so much personal esteem for Jacob is because of nerd hurdles and because of his interaction on the simply syndicated forums. The reason I'm citing him for Halloween is truly the music of Moonwood.
Just taking a quick check to my Zoom directory confirms that I have 13 Moonwood albums on my MP3 player at at any given time. A lot of those are available online. I'll talk about how in just a moment. But the ones that I want to cite are actually quite recent. River Ghosts from 2011 builds a nice, spooky, atmospheric kind of a mood. I was listening to this on headphones the other day while spending some time in the grocery store, and it it really creates a a different impression of just the normal process of picking out food to eat. And the 2012 release, The Strength of the Pack is in the Wolf, and The Strength of the Wolf is in the Pack. This is among my favorite instrumental rock albums of all time, and I don't say that lightly. But the variety of musicianship that's represented there, the consistency in the tone throughout the album, and just the entertaining challenge that it represents, if you get a chance to listen to this, by all means do. There's at least one music video up online uh, under the, for the song, It Takes a Child to Raise a Village. And by raise, this means (laughs) R-A-Z-E. Not quite the same thing as building up. But Jacob doesn't just make music under the Moonwood heading. I also have several albums by Babel, which is another instrumental project from him. Less of a, of a rock experimental, alternative rock experimental form, and more of kind of a place where classical jazz and perhaps even at times New Age experimentation meet. I've got five albums on my player right now from, from that period. And the two of them that I like best are fairly recent. In Alpha Beta... He has created song titles for the albums using the keys played in the performance of those songs in the sequence that they appear in. In some ways, the concept reminds me of some of the high concept things that Anthony Braxton would do, uh, playing saxophone, of course, instead of the musical instruments that uh, Jacob does. And the other one, which I hesitate to pronounce, I may get it wrong, but I'm going to call it Zalreich, Z-A-H-L-R-E-I-C-H-E including some songs played with kitchen appliances and and other sort of found utensils kind of an approach. It's musically about as interesting as you're going to get and cutting edge to such a degree that if I was working at a record store and was being asked to put these albums out, I don't know whether I would go with a new age placement, jazz, would I go in the rock section or alternative? I wouldn't have the first clue. And that's a very, very good thing. And of course, one of the things I think you'd probably be expecting from a different drummer but come Halloween time, it used to be that in my house, we would you know, put on some music, and that way when you open the door to trick-or-treaters, you'd have something spooky or interesting playing in the background. And when in doubt, my go-to band used to be Skinny Puppy, and that's, that's always going to work. In fact, almost anything from Skinny Puppy in their back-and-forth series is going to have the right kind of musical surprises to it. But this year, if I have my way, the music playing in the background will be Moonwood. If not River Ghost, certainly the latest release. But that's not all you can find musically from Jacob Raylinger, and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting. If I were to go to a list of free downloads on his website, arachnidisks.wordpress.com, A-R-A-C-H-N-I-D-I-S-C-S.wordpress.com, there's a series of albums, including one of my all-time favorites. And so uh, it's not that you can count on Jacob to just release interesting and challenging instrumental music. He's got music where there's vocals and uh, under the name The Urbane Decay, there's more than one release available, including available for free download. The one not to miss is One True Soul. Now, One True Soul, I mentioned Jacob and Mandy's connection. Maybe the first time I heard Mandy's voice, 
if it wasn't on the earliest episodes of Nerd Hurdles, it would have been on the song Chinese Astrology from One True Soul. And in fact, if you only invested the time for two tracks from the Urbane Decay, the two I would pick are the title track, One True Soul, and Chinese Astrology. Other albums available free to download, at least at the time I'm making this recording. Ryle, under the heading Babel. Super Pop, recordings going all the way back to around the high school and you know, maybe immediately post-high school era of his work. And it, as it sounds, it's, um, it's high-energy pop, indie pop. Sister Ray is also available. Uh, he describes it online as a slow, sleepy blend of trip-hop, shoegaze, and psychedelic rock with creepy guitar and ethereal vocals. Babel's Seraphim album is available. Johnny Microwave, a track called Assassinate the Stars, and The Metrics, just two tracks by The Metrics, but somewhere between free jazz and electronic noise jams, uh, and punk dub. So lots of music available, some of it free, worth sampling, but I will just put a reminder out that even if you like what you hear from Babel, there are perhaps more rich rewards in the last couple of releases under that name. And I don't think anything that's here available for free download is an easy, quick comparison to what's available under the heading Moonwood. Jacob isn't just, as his bio describes, a musician or a podcaster. He's also an author. At ampersand.bigcartel.com, there is a small product list, uh, small books, small runs, less is more, under the heading Ampersand Publishing. The two available right now are Stained Glass, short story, and the other one is a collection of art. As I mentioned, if you go to the Flickr under Jacob Rellinger's photo stream, you can see other art. Some of it clearly created for the, for the purpose of using inside music, uh, cover art, for example, for music. But he's also done other artistic projects as well. My favorite is not currently available, and I don't know if it will be. It appears from a publishing perspective, the next thing which may come out is material from a set of blog posts on nerd hurdles based on search terms. On a monthly basis, for many months, in fact for years now, Nerd Hurdles has gathered the most interesting search terms which have led people to visit and find the Nerd Hurdles website and podcast and have you know, then made you know, comments about the various search terms. It's one of the more entertaining monthly blog posts that I encounter online, just for the humor alone. And that may come out as a small book in the future. For, um, for me, though, my favorite is a poetry book called The Light May Glitter. Here's a note about the assembly from Jacob. I've always been fascinated by user manuals. That's not to say I've read one, but the fact that they exist fascinates me. I'm also fascinated by the headspace one would have to have to be in in order to write a useful user manual. I'm not sure I could do it. Actually, I'm not sure many people who do it for a living get past the get in the proper headspace. More often than not, the documents assume a level of technological savvy and familiarity with the product far beyond the average user. Another fascination of mine are online translators, namely Babelfish, and chiefly translating random documents into traditional Chinese and back, and what comes out is mangled English. It's a cheap way to amuse yourself. Well, what Jacob has done is create poetry from that exact combination of things. Take a user's manual for something that maybe is mundane as a vacuum cleaner, type the words into Babelfish, convert them to Mandarin, convert them back, and then take what you can from what's left and use it as poetry. It is, in any event, going to be abstract and distracting in the best sort of ways. And at times, perhaps, has the ability, has the potential to linger toward the profound. 
I'll only cite one example. It's essentially the title track of this user manual poetry mini book called The Light Make Glitter. It's not the best example, but it's the title track, so why not? Use coins, lift gently. If you are purchased in the national use, press the country. You will need to believe firmly. Power cannot recall the damage. The circular telegram uses only sharp suggestion. The light may glitter. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. While thinking of writing and writing projects, I'd like to cite one more. MrDapper.wordpress.com. No, no punctuation. MrDapper.wordpress.com. Includes Jacob's ongoing project of attempting to write 100 poems in a set span of time. These are available. They're short. They're actually, for poetry, pithy is the word that comes to mind. To give you just a quick example of it, I'll cite one from August of this year. Poem 030 of a hundred. This anxiety that I've forgotten, something I should feel an acute anxiety over. This is the sense that you get. Some of them are longer, some perhaps even shorter than that. But again, from for the Twitter generation in particular, a very quick, easy, and quite often delightful read. And there's a uh, blog post there under 100 short poems that Jake has been adding to as he goes. And just for fun, while I'm here, I think I'll read the bio on the Mr. Dapper site. Who is Mr. Dapper anyway? Well, Mr. Dapper is decidedly less than Dapper fellow named Jacob Raylinger. He is equal parts podcaster, musician, artist, graphic designer, and writer. Here, you'll encounter him as a blogger, the most dubious of all art forms. Why does Jacob call himself Mr. Dapper? The original Mr. Dapper lived in Jacob's hometown in British Columbia. He was impeccably dressed, had exemplary posture, and went by many names over the years. The Walking Man, the Red-Haired Man, and the Dapper Man are all monikers people gave him. They all fit. He was, quite literally, a dapper, red-haired man who walked briskly around town, an awful lot, and wore a nice hat. Jacob was obsessed with him for many years, and occasionally resorted to stalking him. The original incarnation of this blog was, briefly, a fictionalized diary of the man. In this particular line, this particular blog, Jacob also did one of my favorite moments dealing with the kind of spam email people get. In fact, the dangerous level of spam email. One of those equivalent of a Nigerian prince, maybe your long lost relative. If you, you know, contact me and we can make arrangements and for just a few thousand dollars, I can wire over the money. One of those situations and responding to that intentionally and knowingly, Jacob created a fictitious name changed the gender of the character at one point along the way and continually called the individual, the spammer, the scammer, actually, on things like bad grammar and inconsistencies in communication, never of once, of course, giving away any sort of uh, information that could lead you to being ripped off or, or for that matter, being stalked. But all the while, um, continuing to engage the individual for as long as the individual would be engaged and perhaps performing a public service along the way by occupying enough of this person's time that they didn't have an opportunity to steal money from a little old lady or a little old man, dapper or not.
One of my earliest interactions with Jacob was online, and I mentioned it in the second of these inappropriate conversations. See, I'm not just an archivist for my own work. If I really admire something, if it means something to me, I'm capable of being an archivist for other people's works as well. I'm somebody that the Simply Syndicated Forum has called on at least once in the past to say, hey, we've lost something. Do you have a copy of it? And, you know, happy to do so, especially when the answer is yes, I'm happy to do so. From the very first forum that I ever joined, which I spoke about in episode 100 a little bit, Jacob was already there and was somebody that I was interacting with, you know, pretty much from the very beginning. Part of that is that he would engage with other people in conversation. He was very willing and uh, would put challenging points of view out there that really got things going. One of the quotes that I saved from that forum, because it amused me to no end, and I thought that one day I might cite it, and I actually did, again, in Inappropriate Conversations too. Here's what Jacob wrote. In a conversation about Christians and the way Christians interact with others, uh, the conversation essentially being fairly negative, where you know somebody had actually made the observation that for most websites outside of the realm of Simply Syndicated, a conversation about religion would be shut down very quickly because it would catch fire and turn into flame. And it's a credit to Simply Syndicated as an environment that that doesn't happen. But here's what Jacob wrote. I've never had a bad experience with Christians. I mean, involving their religion. Well, other than my high school principal, who didn't like me selling my band's demo tape, if I love Jesus, does that make me gay from out of my locker? But that has more to do with him being a douche sack than a Christian. I, I saw that quote and I thought to myself, yes, at some point, I may need to make reference to this. It's certainly worth a mention. I have met Jacob and Mandy a couple of times. And to be honest with you, it's still a couple of times too few. I'll be very surprised if I don't take advantage of some future simply syndicated meetup in Canada or elsewhere to give me a chance to spend more time with these interesting, interesting people. One of the things that I didn't get to do that I would have loved to have done just this year was to hear Jacob performing as Babel in you know, a collaboration with a handbell choir. Now, this isn't just any handbell choir. When I hear the word handbell choir, I normally think of church and uh, church music. That's most of the time I've ever heard handbells play. That's what it is. But this is a secular group, and they play things like Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff like that on handbells, which is a very cool musical instrument if it has a worthwhile, cool arrangement to play with it. And even if it's just a five-minute track or a 10-minute track, Jacob's multifaceted instrumentation, collaborating with a handbell choir, that's either really, really interesting or really, really scary. And even if it is the latter, what an appropriate thing for this time of year. Sadly, it seems like the sense of humor you need to have to make the most out of Halloween is unavailable to most Christians. Before I leave today, I'd like to make a quick mention of a blog post that I put up, again, a couple of years ago. If you're looking for it by date at www.inappropriateconversations.org, you'll actually find it on October 31st. It's called Doing the Devil's Bidding, and it speaks as well as I could again today if I tried from scratch to explain why I, as a Christian, have no problem with Halloween. I'm just not superstitious enough to have that kind of a problem. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And show notes are enabled at the podcast site, www.inappropriateconversations.org. Thanks for listening.
Bring out the worst in each other 